Turn in your Bibles to Psalms 143 tonight. Man, blessing to get to be in the house of God. Uh, I was shocked at how well that baby played the piano. Did you see that? That was very encouraging. And uh, we got to raise them up when they're young. Amen. That was a blessing. And it was sweet of Melissa to hold him while he did that. So I appreciate that. Psalms 143. And we'll read the entirety of this psalm as we've done for the past three weeks. And uh, then I want us to take notice particularly of one verse. Psalms 143, verse number one. The Bible says, Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my supplications. In thy faithfulness answer me, and in thy righteousness. And enter not into judgment with thy servant. For in thy sight shall no man living be justified. For the enemy hath persecuted my soul. He hath smitten my life down to the ground. He hath made me to dwell in darkness as those that have been long dead. Therefore is my spirit overwhelmed within me. My heart within me is desolate. I remember the days of old. I meditate on all thy works. I muse on the work of thy hands. I stretch forth my hands unto thee. My soul thirsteth after thee as a thirsty land. Selah. Hear me speedily, O Lord. My spirit faileth. Hide not thy face from me, lest I be like unto them that go down into the pit. Cause me to hear thy loving kindness in the morning. For in thee do I trust. Cause me to know the way wherein I should walk, for I lift up my soul unto thee. Deliver me, O Lord, from mine enemies. I flee unto thee to hide me. Teach me to do thy will, for thou art my God. Thy spirit is good. Lead me into the land of uprightness. Quicken me, O Lord, for thy name's sake. For thy righteousness' sake bring my soul out of trouble. And of thy mercy cut off mine enemies and destroy all them that afflict my soul. For I and thy servant. Let's pray together. Father, we love you tonight. Thanks for letting us be in the house of God. I pray that you'd take the word, wield it, Lord. It's the sword of your spirit. Wield it tonight in our hearts and minds. It has a supernatural power, Lord, beyond what human thought and what human eloquence can do. We're asking that you would accomplish that work in us through that supernatural power that you would take and and pierce to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. Lord, that you would dissect our life and apply explicitly and distinctly your word in a way that would draw us closer unto thee and would bring you glory. Lord, we love you and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we mentioned, for the last three Wednesday nights, we have been following a theme through the 143rd Psalm. Uh, you'll notice that this psalm divides itself into two portions. Marked, that division is, by the word Selah in verse number 6. And in the first six verses, the psalmist describes his circumstances. They set the stage for some things that he's going to ask the Lord for. This is not a good time in David's life, but it is a trying time. And we noticed three things. I'll mention them by way of review to you. The first thing we noticed, Notice in verse 1 is he asked God to hear his prayer. He says, hear my prayer, O Lord, give ear to my supplications. Now, evidently, he wasn't hearing from the Lord, felt as though there was some trouble in his prayer life because he asked the Lord in thy faithfulness, answer me. He doesn't say because I deserve it. He doesn't say because I've earned it or because I've prayed well. But he says, in your faithfulness, God, answer me and in thy righteousness. Then in verse 2, he says, enter not into judgment with thy servant. Evidently, he felt as though his relationship with the Lord was being scrutinized by the eyes of God. And he makes this admission, for in thy sight shall no man living be justified. I don't know about you, but when I read that, that doesn't sound like a man that is brimming with confidence concerning his standing with God. 
That sounds like a fellow that's trying to get a hold of God and is struggling to do so. And we might say it this way. It was a season of silence in his life. I don't know about you, but there have been times in my life where I've tried to get a hold of God and just felt like I couldn't. And I know by faith that he hears my prayers. I understand that. I understand that he bends his ear to those that uh, know him and that trust in him. But it don't change the fact, man. There's been times, I mean, the, the, the prayer room has, has been dynamic and exciting and you could feel so sweetly the presence of God. But then there have been plenty of times when I've went in there and looked around and thought, well, I wonder when God's going to show up. <laughs> and And sought the Lord and poured my heart out before him and, felt as though there was a mile of concrete between me and him. And the psalmist evidently is struggling in this way. He says in verse number three, the enemy hath persecuted my soul. Now, he could have been talking about Saul. He could have been talking about Absalom. He could have been uh, talking, you know, about Shimei. He could have been talking about any number of his adversaries during his life. Uh, But, you know, even if you might not have a tangible physical adversary, you certainly have a spiritual adversary. The Bible uh, speaks of our adversary, the devil. David says the enemy hath persecuted my soul. He says he hath smitten my life down to the ground. You ever feel beat down by your struggles? He says he hath made me to dwell in darkness as those that have been long dead. When he speaks of darkness, undoubtedly, he's not just speaking of of physical or, 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 you know, environmental darkness, but he's speaking of spiritual darkness, emotional darkness. He really sums it up at the beginning of verse 4. He says, therefore is my spirit overwhelmed within me. This is the picture of a man who is not flying high in spiritual aptitude, but is a man who is struggling. And we could say it this way, it was a season of suffering in his life. He was being persecuted by his foes. And, you know, sometimes if we can manage to sort of seal out the effects of that, we do all right. And we just sort of like a float buoy along the waves of life. But David didn't feel that way. It had seeped into his heart and mind such that he felt discouraged. He felt overwhelmed. Have you ever felt overwhelmed in life? He felt overwhelmed. He felt like he was in spiritual darkness. So it was a season of silence. It was a season of suffering. But at the end of verse 4, he makes an interesting statement. Then he expands on it. He says this, my heart within me is desolate. Desolate means empty. It means barren. Uh, The Bible described the children of Israel and their journeyings and used this terminology in the Old Testament. It's always stuck with my mind. Called uh, the uh, wilderness of Sinai a waste howling wilderness. And certainly uh, there are times in our life when we feel like spiritually we're going through a barrenness, through a willing, uh, through a wilderness. He describes what it used to be like. Verse five, he says, I remember the days of old. I meditate on all thy works. I muse on the work of thy hands. And then he says, I stretch forth my hands unto thee. That's symbology of prayer. That's a posture of prayer. And uh, I thought it was funny. Brother Ken mentioned that, said they get on their hands and knees and pray. Some of them must have went like that right there. I don't so they all say, Mm-mm. And I understand why you get to a place in life, you get down on your hands and knees, you can't be guaranteed you'll be able to get back up off your hands and knees. Uh, and, and I don't think it matters necessarily how our physical posture is, uh, but there is a, a symbolism here regarding the, the, the posture of prayer. He says, I stretch forth my hands as someone that is coming in surrender, as someone that is coming imploring, beseeching, seeking, uh, some sort of help. He says, I stretch forth my hands unto thee. And then he says, my soul thirsteth after thee as a thirsty land. 
All this bespeaks the notion of a person who is grappling with spiritual barrenness in their life. And let me say it this way. It was a season of silence and suffering, but evidently it was a season of staleness. We just felt like all the, all of the, you know, dynamic, uh, aspects of his spiritual life had been, had been sucked dry out of him. He just felt like, and you probably felt this way, you ever felt like a wrung out dish rag? I mean, just like all that is beneficial, all that is encouraging has been robbed from you. And, and that's how the psalmist feels. Now, you may be too spiritual to have those moments, but David is struggling and, and he's pouring out his heart to God and he's saying, Lord, I want to know you like I used to know you. I want to feel you like I used to feel you. I want to worship you like I used to worship you. And so he is in a distressed season in his life. He is struggling upwardly. He's struggling outwardly. He's struggling inwardly. And the only thing he knows to do is come to the Lord and pray. You wonder why David uh, was such a wise man. It's not, and I heard a preacher say this. It really resonated with me. He said, you know, David was not necessarily a morally stainless man. And it's not that God wouldn't have forgiven Saul, but it's not that Saul was a worse sinner than David. It's that David was a better repenter than Saul. David did as wicked the things as as, as Saul did, but he knew how to get right with God. And I would say that David is a man who is not a spiritual superhero. He's flesh and blood, and the Holy Ghost goes out of his way to highlight that reality in his life. But he was a wise man for this reason. He didn't expect to have all the answers but he understood where he could go to get them. And he didn't know what to do, but he knew he could go to God. And so the last half of this psalm is really David asking God to do some things in his life. I'm so thankful for this psalm because I've been in moments in my life where I did not know what to do. I didn't know what I needed. And the Holy Ghost here under inspiration gives us a list of things that David asks for And he's requesting of God. And I think when you or I are in seasons, one or all of of which we've talked about, or maybe something altogether separate, but a battle that you're struggling with, you're in a distressed situation, I think this psalm helps us because it tells us what we really need and how we ought to be praying. We've been calling this series The Desires of a Distressed Heart. We looked on week one at verse number seven. David says, Hear me speedily, O Lord. My spirit faileth. Hide not thy face from me, lest I be like unto them that go down into the pit. Here's what he's asking for, that his prayers would be heard. If you can get your prayer life sorted out, everything else will get sorted out. Because prayer is the means to getting everything sorted out. And so David understands that the preeminent thing is that his prayer life get sorted out. He asks for his prayers to be heard. Verse 80 says this, Cause me to hear thy loving kindness in the morning. For in thee do I trust. Cause me to know the way wherein I should walk, for I lift up my soul unto thee. It's interesting. He doesn't say, Lord, love me, because he knows the Lord loves him. He says, Lord, help me to know that you love me. And we described it this way. The second thing he asks is that his mind would be sound. He understands how precarious that battlefield, how perilous that battlefield of the mind can be. And so he wants to be assured. He wants to be fortified and grounded in the reality of the love of God so that no matter what may come, he can rest in that truth and that confidence. Last week we looked at verse 9. Uh, some of y'all, you may be too spiritual to pray this way, but David, he prayed this way. Sometimes I pray this way. He says, deliver me, O Lord, from mine enemies. I flee unto thee to hide me. He prayed that his enemies would be defeated. He prayed that God would deliver him from those that wanted to destroy him. And it's interesting. He doesn't say destroy my enemies. He says deliver me. 
And what a reminder that is that we need to leave the details of the matter in God's hands. And God doesn't mind us praying and asking for things, and certainly we should. And God doesn't begrudge us being specific in our prayer. But we ought to be uh, mature enough and have the wisdom to say, you know, I may not know the best way for this to happen, but I can trust the Lord to do it the right way. Next week, if the Lord lets us, if you don't come back first or strike me dead, and either one is as likely, um, we're going to look at verse number 11 where he says this, Quicken me, O Lord, for thy name's sake, for thy righteousness' sake, Bring my soul out of trouble. And we won't dwell on it, but next week, if the Lord will help us, uh, we'll notice how he asked for his faith to be strengthened. I'll tell you, we need our faith strengthened, don't we? But tonight, with the Lord's help, I want us to look at verse 10. I want you to notice what he prays for. Verse 10, he says this, Teach me to do thy will, for thou art my God. Thy spirit is good. Lead me into the land of uprightness. Here the psalmist asks for this simple request for his path to be clear. He wants to know what he needs to do. I don't know about you, but a great deal of my prayer life is spent just trying to find the mind of God. Lord, I want to know what your desire is for my life. I'll tell you this, if you can figure out what God wants out of you, then, you know, who cares what anyone else expects out of you? Great peace of mind can be found in understanding what the will of God is and that's what we're told in the New Testament. One of Paul's prayers for us is that we would know what the will of God is. There are many that would suggest to us that it's impossible to know what the will of God is, that we just have to stumble about. And I would suggest this to you, that the Bible's very clear regarding the precepts and principles of the will of God for our life. And the Holy Spirit of God will never lead you outside of accord with the Scripture. He'll never tell you to do anything that's, that's not biblical. All right. So if you had an inclination or a vision or a sensation or or a, an, an instinct that was contrary to Scripture, that's not God leading you because God will only lead you in accordance with the word of God. Then I would also suggest this. There are particulars of our life where the spirit of God must lead us, where we may not find a clear case text, although there are always. And I would say this, that everything in the Bible, everything in life is dealt with in the Bible, either in particular or in principle. Say, preacher, what do you mean? Give me an example. Well, the Bible says particularly that alcohol is wrong. It's a sin. It's a sin to drink alcohol. It's a sin to drink alcohol. I'm just going to keep saying it because there's a hundred preachers that ain't said it in 30 years. So this needs to be said a lot. And I won't overstep the quota of it being said because very few preachers are willing to say it. Drinking alcohol is a sin. The Bible's abundantly clear about that that we are commanded not to drink alcohol. What about drugs? Drugs are not addressed in the Bible. Oh, listen, you can go back, you can find the word sorcery, and you can tie it to pharmaceuticals and things like that. And There's all kinds of hoops you can jump through, but we don't really have to go that far because the reality is drugs do the very same thing that alcohol does in that it, it lowers our inhibitions, it takes the mastery over our behavior and our character, and, and it wrests control from God that only he should have in our life. So, in other words, the Bible deals with alcohol in particular, but it deals with drugs in principle. We could give a thousand examples along that same vein of thinking, but the Word of God deals with everything either in principle or in particular. And we can go to the Bible to find an answer. I'm shocked by how few people are biblical Christians. Very few people today allow their beliefs. I may just, have you got time for a rant? I mean, I was, I was real quick going through that first part. All right. Very few people are biblical in their worldview. And you know that because they tell you things and you say, show me that in the Bible. And they look scandalized by that. They look shocked that they would be asked to 
to prove it by the word of God. I'm not just talking about some rank pagan out there, but I'm talking about people that claim to be Bible believers. But very little of what they believe is rooted in the Bible. It's rooted in superstition. It's rooted in mysticism. It's rooted in culture. It's rooted in personal preference. But very little of it is rooted in the Bible. We ought to be Bible believers. And we ought to be able to have Bible to back up our choices and our decisions. I would also say this, that the Spirit of God certainly leads us intimately in our life. Never contrary to the Word of God, but in concert with the Word of God. And so God desires for us to know His will. There's abundant evidence in the Bible that God doesn't want for us to just bounce around life like a pinball in a machine, but rather to live deliberate and with purpose and with confidence that what we're doing is the will of God. I've, for 12 years now, people would come to me and say, Preacher, I'm, I'm praying about joining the church. I think maybe I should. And my answer has always been the same to them. Do you believe it's the will of God? Do you believe it's the will of God? Nothing less than that is acceptable. You need to believe it's the will of God. Don't join because I preached a good message. Because for every good one I preach, there will be a dozen that are terrible. Don't preach it because the singing was good. There's days the piano ain't in tune. Don't, don't join because the people are nice. Because there's days they ain't. The reason you join is because you believe this is the will of God for my life. And guess what? On those days when a sour note is hit, on those days when a, when a dud of a sermon is preached, on those days when people are not on their best behavior, what's going to carry you through? You're going to say, well, that was a rough day, but I know I'm where the will of God has led me. Confident. And so David, he has entered a season of his life when he needs to be confident of his footsteps. He's entered a dark place. And one of the things that always happens when you enter darkness is you begin to grope about and second guess your footsteps. I, I live, I've got two boys at home and when you have children at home and I don't, I don't know if girls are this way. I've not raised any, but boys, all their toys are sharp. Everything they own. Nothing is round. Everything, it's all Legos and micro machines and, and little bitty tiny weapons that are like needles that go to toys that they've lost long ago. And they get strewn around. And I'm telling you something. I mean, I don't even worry. You know, I've got the means to protect my family and stuff in the house. But truth be told, they'd never make it to our bedroom. <clears throat> I mean, they'd be, listen, they'd be hollering out saying, somebody call 911. I've got a Lego stuck in my foot. <laughs> And, uh, you know, when you're walking through the dark, one of the things you always will do, you'll begin to grope for your footing. I want to know that I'm standing on solid ground. That's a natural thing to do. And the psalmist going through a dark season in his life, he begins to grope for solid footing. And where does he know that he can find that? Well, he knows he can find it in the will of God. He knows I can handle anything that may come if I know that I'm in the will of God. Four statements encompass the psalmist's prayer for guidance from the Lord. And I want you to notice them with me tonight, and, and then we'll be done. If we have extra time, we may even do a rant at the end, all right? I don't know. But uh, notice the first phrase that's given in verse 10. He says simply this, teach me to do thy will. Notice number one tonight, the instruction that he requests. He says, Lord, I don't just want to intuit my way through life. I don't just want to sort of uh, of, of instinctively navigate, Lord... I want to know what your will is. What is a will? Well, it's the desires and ambitions and requests of a person. When we talk about a person's will, we're talking about what they want 
out of a matter. One of the things that people normally leave whenever they leave this world is a last will and testament. What are they doing? They're saying, these are my wishes concerning what I have left behind. I want them to be carried out. And when a will is executed, you're saying, we're not distributing this stuff according to what we would want, but we are reading what this person has left behind and making sure what they wanted done is done. The will of God in your life means for God's desires to be lived out and exercised, sometimes at the expense of your own. Now, there's times you may want what God wants, but man, you better you better get it clear in your head that if there's ever a choice, you're far better off to have what he wants than you are what we want. Notice two things about this. One of the things that we notice, he's praying, Lord, teach me to do thy will. It tells me this. He's asking that he would be guided. In other words, he's saying, Lord, I don't know what's best. I need you to show me what's best. Think with me about this. Number one, it's a needful request. I I notice he said this, teach me. Now, when you teach someone something, you're giving them information they don't already have. That's what teaching is, right? You don't have to teach someone to do something that they already know how to do. You teach them things they don't know. And you say, oh, preacher, this is elementary school. I come to prayer meeting and not get some help. Well, I'll help you a little bit. You listen to me. The fact of the matter is, you don't instinctively know the right way to live. You have to be told the right way to live. Uh, we don't just sort of by gut instinct intuit our way through this life. We have to be shown. David, in his humility and in his wisdom, he recognizes that it's not enough for him to just sort of figure it out. It won't just work itself out. He needs the mind of God about this man. It's a needful request. You may think you already have it all figured out, but one of the things that age always laughs at youth about is is how quickly you learn in life how little you do have figured out. I mean, it's a trope, man. We talk about, uh, people will joke about how much they knew when they were 16 and how much they forgot by the time they were 26. And the joke is that they, they didn't really know that much at 16. They thought they knew everything at 16. But as they began to navigate through life, they realized that they did not have it all figured out. And why is it that we as believers still struggle with this matter of being humble enough to admit that we don't know the best path, that God knows the best best path, and that we need his wisdom about a matter? I don't know why, except it's just uh, just rope pride. That's all it is in our life, uh, that we are unwilling to look at God and say, God, I don't know what to do. There's sometimes I've met people in life that was shocked at the prospect that they'd ever not have a plan. But it won't take much of life before you realize that your plans can crumble into dust. But God's plans are firm and they are eternal. It was a needful request. But then notice number two, it, it's a helpful request. So what do you mean, preacher? Well, he's not just asking this for God's benefit. I don't know if you're aware of this, but God's okay being God without your help. He's not waiting for you to sign on to this thing of him being God for him to feel validated and for him to feel as though he has somehow earned his his station and, and, and his office. He he does not need our obedience for him to be God. I'll, I'll tell you this, men ever since the Garden of Eden have been disobeying God and not once has God's divinity ever been at risk. And so when God commands us to do things, it's not because he needs us to do it. Now you say, well, preacher, we ought to serve the Lord, and the Lord uses us. And yeah, and a God that created all things could get pretty much anything done without you if he wanted to. And so he gives us instruction, not because it's helpful to him, but because it's helpful to us. And here's what you need to understand. You'll be far better off getting in the will of God and staying in the will of God 
then you will be trying to do it your own way. Now, I know you're sitting there thinking, oh, preacher, I know all these things. Then why do we, and I say, I, I scoop myself into this, then why do we so rarely seek God's will? I, years ago, wrote a little devotional about the notion of, of how we interact with God. And I'll tell you how we have devolved in our leaning upon the Lord and our reliance upon Him. Have you ever watched football? And, uh, you know, when you watch football, rarely is the coach communicating directly with the player. I mean, <laughs> short of just screaming and cussing at him, it's pretty rare that he's actually face-to-face having a conversation with his players during a timeout, they might be. I mean, listen, I'm sure he's talking to the defense some when the offense is on the field and vice versa. But have you ever wondered who's calling all those plays? Who's the person doing that, right? Well, a lot of times if you ever pay attention, you watch football, you'll see a quarterback run around, and he'll have a big old piece of plastic on his wrist. I don't know if you've ever noticed it. But you know what that is? That is a playbook. And oftentimes what the quarterback is doing is he, as a proxy for the coach, is calling plays from the huddle is what they call. In other words, he thinks he knows the mind of the coach. He thinks he knows the best decision because he feels like he's been coached sufficiently enough. And now in the huddle, he is taking it upon himself to make the play calls. Every now and then when you're watching, though, you'll see them line up and set up for a play. And then all of a sudden you'll hear a whistle blow and there'll be a timeout call. And you'll see the quarterback run over and you'll see the coach smack him across the helmet and start screaming unacceptable things in his face. You know what happened there? He called a dumb play from the huddle and the coach called a timeout so that he could drag him over to the sideline and say, boy, what are you thinking? That was not at all what I expected of you. Can I tell you, we as Christians have a bad habit of calling life's plays from the huddle. You see, we've read this book. We think we have everything figured out. And we think we can then take and distill down the Bible into a handful of easy-to-remember distilled principles that can be tattooed on our wrist, and we don't then have to communicate with God. But can I tell you that's not the truth? God has a perspective and a view. He has a, 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 a vision about what's going on in life that you and I are not privy to. And it's not enough to just say, well, I kind of know what I think God would want me to do about things. Now, listen, when the Bible's abundantly clear about a matter, I mean, I'll be the first to tell you, there's some things you ain't got to pray about because God's already spoken on it. But by the same token, you ought to be very cautious in your life of trying to subcontract out the governance of your life to yourself and assuming you know God's mind about matters that you really have no reason to believe that you do. See, here's what the psalmist understood. He'd be better off knowing the will of God. Sometimes the will of God can be scary. There's been times that before I was willing to accept the will of God, I already knew the will of God and I ran from the will of God because I was terrified of it. Can I tell you this? Never after having walked in the will of God have I ever regretted going the direction of the will of God. It's a helpful request. So what is he asking for? Number one, that he would be guided. Let's ask this question. Why is he asking for that? You'll always ask the question, why is this here? What's the greater context? Well, remember, he's struggling in life. He's going through some difficult seasons. He's spiritually stale. He, he, he feels overwhelmed. He feels spiritually barren. And here's what he's wanting. He's wanting, not num- number one, that he would be guided, but number two, that he would be grounded. He understands that he needs to know that he is on firm footing if he is to withstand the things that he is going through. You know, there was a time in the Old Testament when Elijah, at a moment of despair, laid down and 
and, and purpose just give up and die. And the angel comes along and, and, and fixes him a meal and he nudges him and he, and he says this to him. He says, arise and eat for the journey is too great for thee. Here's what he was saying to him. You need to get up and prepare because what you got in front of you is a lot bigger than what you think that it is. He was saying, don't just assume you have the strength for what you're about to face. You need the spiritual nourishment to face whatever it is that's coming down the pike. And I would say in our life, it is a very dangerous thing to assume in our life that we don't have to have the firm conviction of the will of God, that we can just handle whatever comes flying at us. Man, the devil's got things in his repertoire that make you second guess, uh, make you doubt things that you think you never would. Uh, you say, oh, preacher, it'd never be me. Better ones than you or me have, have fallen prey to it. And the psalmist, his wisdom was that he understood that during this precarious time, he needed to know he was in the will of God. We should always know we're in the will of God. If we don't know we're in the will of God, let's get in the will of God. But let me tell you, you really need to know you're in the will of God when hard times come. When all of a sudden your world is topsy-turvy and you're being tossed around like a termite in a yo-yo, you need to know that you're in the will of God. And the psalmist, he craves for this instruction. Notice not only the instruction that he requests, but notice the administration that he invokes. Very interesting phrase. Teach me to do thy will. Now, this is a request. He's asking God to do this. But then he says this, for thou art my God. Nothing in your King James Bible is there by accident. It's all there on purpose. Why did David say this? He's not informing God of anything that God does not already know. He's not uttering anything that he himself does not already know. So what's the force? What's the effect of what he's saying? Well, here's what I think he's doing. He's saying, Lord, I want to know your will. And this is why I have the boldness to ask for that instruction. He's predicating his request on two things. One, he's suggesting this, that it is appropriate because of God's authority. In other words, he's saying, I want to know your will because you're God. And your will is what matters not my will. What matters is not that my ambitions be lived out, but rather that your will be realized in my life. He is reminding himself how imperative it is that he knows the will of God. We have a real problem sometimes being reminded of which one of us between us and God is God. And sometimes we get this sort of charismatic perspective like he's a cosmic bellhop that's just sitting there waiting for us to name and claim whatever we want him to do. And that he'll hop to and then carry out our greatest wishes and dreams. But if you got that worldview, you didn't get it from the Bible. Because that's not the perspective of the word of God. It's not that he is here to serve at our behest, but that we're here to serve at his behest. But let me tell you, there's a comfort that comes along with that. Because the servant is not expected to have a groundbreaking solid plan. He is only expected to carry out the plan that the master gives. And the psalmist is saying, teach me to do thy will. You're God. I'm not God. <laughs> I didn't ask to be in this situation, Lord, but here I am. And in this situation, all I desire desperately is that I know what your will is. In other words, he, he invokes this fact that it's appropriate because of God's authority. But then number two, I think he's implying this, that it's reasonable for him to ask this because of God's responsibility. If God is God, then it's his job to run things. That doesn't mean we don't have a responsibility to obey and respond appropriately. Of course we do. But he's saying, I want to know your will. And since I am your servant, he'll say that at the end of this psalm, for I am thy servant. Since I am your servant, Lord, then it is your responsibility to tell me what I need to do 
Because if I'm here to carry out your will and not mine, I cannot do that if I do not know what your will is. Now let me put this disclaimer on what I'm about to say. Being the servant gives us a right to the details of his will. But it does not give us authority over the timing of his will. And there's a great many times that we get upset at God. And it's not that he won't tell us. It's that he's not told us yet. If we're really the servant, then we have no opinion as to when we get those instructions. Only that they be given to us in timely enough manner for us to respond. In other words, it's not our job as the servant to look at God and tap our watch and say, All right, Lord, it's time for you to let me in on what your master plan is. No. It's not the disposition of a servant. A servant stands there ready, and whenever the master is ready to dispense instruction, the servant is ready to receive it. However, it would be completely irrational for the master to look at the servant and say, why didn't you do what I told you to do when he hadn't told him to do it? And so David is reminding himself and and reminding the Lord, and undoubtedly the Holy Spirit is reminding even us tonight as New Testament believers that it is perfectly appropriate to seek the will of God. He is God, and as God, it is his responsibility in his time and when necessary to disclose to us his will. Sometimes you may not be ready yet. Sometimes you may not be ready yet, even though you think you are. But when the time comes, we can trust that he will reveal it. So I see the instruction he requests, the administration he invokes. But then I love this simple statement. Me and the Lord talked a lot about this statement today. He says, thy spirit is good. That's interesting. Why does he say that? Thy spirit is good. That's an obvious statement. I think that gets the obvious award for this psalm, right? Thy spirit is good. Here's what I think. Here's a man that's struggling spiritually. Here's a man that he himself described His soul is thirsting after God as a thirsty land. Here's a man that described his heart within him as desolate. And here's what I think he's doing. I think he's looking back at how his relationship with God had been. And he's recognizing that beyond merely the details, the marching orders, he needs the fellowship with God that he once enjoyed. Let me say it this way. He's asking, we see the communion that he craves. Think about this. He he talks about, I think, within this, in his mind, was his past experiences with God's Spirit. Me and my wife were talking about this today. It's interesting when you study the history of the life of David. David had a lot of, of, of interactions with the Spirit of God. Now, I'll go ahead and tell you that in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit didn't indwell men like he does today. We're very blessed, man. When was the last time you thanked God for his Spirit? That we don't have to seek for the Spirit of God, that if we're saved, he indwells us. And he's a part of our life. But that was not the case in the Old Testament. People weren't indwelt by the Spirit of God. Instead, the Spirit of God would come upon men or he would lead men for typically special events, special activities, uh, special events. I don't mean like, you know, a birthday. But I mean, maybe that wouldn't be a bad birthday thing to ask God for, would it? But I mean, for instance, whenever the Holy Spirit came upon Saul and he began to prophesy, when the Holy Spirit came upon David and he danced before the Lord when the ark was being returned, But, you know, there are also times the Bible describes the Spirit of God coming upon David when he was just sitting and playing instruments before Saul, trying to soothe his heart and and, and worshiping the Lord. And here's what David does. He looks back and he remembers how good it was when the Spirit of God was sweet and present in his life. And can I tell you, don't underestimate in the midst of darkness how desperately you need God's fellowship. 
He talks about his past experiences with God's Spirit, but then he describes his pleasant experiences with God's Spirit. That word good is interesting. It doesn't mean morally righteous, although certainly the Holy Spirit is holy. That's not what the psalmist is, is, is describing here. The word good here, it means pleasant, enjoyable. Now remember, this is a man that's deeply discouraged, depressed, and defeated. And you think about, you know, we've had, I don't know, 40 days of rain. My ark's about finished. And it's kind of winter time. It's early winter in Tennessee, which means 50 degrees and, and boring, you know. And we're at a time of the year, man, it's easy to get discouraged. It's easy to get defeated. It's easy to get depressed. It's easy to get downtrodden. And you say, preacher, what do I need during those times when I'm really struggling? You say, well, preacher, I need to know the will of God. I need him to hear my prayers. I need all these things. That's true. But don't dismiss how imperative it is that you be spending time with God and enjoying the presence of his fellowship. I tell you this, man, I've never had a bad meeting with the spirit of God. Never once. There's been some hard ones. There's been some ones where he had to straighten me out. But there's never been one that I wasn't benefited by, that there wasn't a pleasantness to. You say, oh, preacher, hey, listen, it ain't pleasant when God chases us. No, but afterwards it yieldeth the peaceable fruits of righteousness in them that believe. There's never been an interaction with the Spirit of God that hasn't come out pleasant when it was all said and done. You say, preacher, I'm discouraged, I'm defeated, everything's miserable, everything's awful, the government's corrupt, gas is high, inflation's crazy, people are stupid, everything's terrible, preacher. You know what's not pre, you know what's not not terrible. The Spirit of God isn't terrible. The Word of God isn't terrible. The Lord's good. Hey, taste and see that the Lord's good. Ain't no wonder we stay discouraged when all we do is drink all that mess in and never, never feast on the Lord. So I, I see the communion he craves. And then finally, and I'm done tonight, notice this last phrase. He says this, lead me in the land of uprightness. It's easy to read that without reading it. It's easy to read it and just in it hear a statement and nothing more. But what does the psalmist mean when he describes the land of uprightness? The phrase uprightness here, it denotes a flat place. So it's not necessarily denoting righteousness, although I think that will be implied in this as well. But a land of uprightness is a land where you can stand up straight. Uh, people move down here from up north and they always laugh at us, don't they? They always, they always laugh at us. They say, oh, you people down there, you get a half inch of snow and you shut everything down. You Crazy Southerners don't have, know how to drive. People move down from Indiana, Ohio, and places like, oh, you people don't know how to drive. And they get down here and they realize we have something very unique and peculiar in this part of the country that they do not appreciate. Hills. Hills, curves. Our, our road system is not a big flat grid. All right. I mean, listen, I, I have never had trouble driving through the Walmart parking lot in a half inch of snow. All right. That's not what we're scared of. It's instead the deep hills and hollers that we've got to climb in and out of that uh, that makes it a little bit difficult. And, you know, they always they get down here and it takes about a year or two and a good snow or two. And then finally they quit fussing at us about that. And they go, I understand, I guess. now. Uh, why is that, preacher? Well, because these are hilly, curvy lands that sometimes it's not easy to stand on. And metaphorically speaking, the psalmist is talking about the trials, the hills, the valleys, the, the curves that he's experiencing in life. And here's what he's saying. I just wish I had a flat place to stand. Let's say it this way. He's seeking a land, a place of flatness, a place where he can get his feet underneath him, a place where he can see more than 30 foot, a place where he can have some grounded sense of, of, uh, of stability. 
And you see, that's what comes from knowing you're in the will of God. It's not that all the curves and, and, and hills and hollers go away from your life. But it's that knowing you're in the will of God gives you a confidence that allows you to navigate those things. Uh, one of the uh, modern perversions changes the book of Proverbs, chapter number 3. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. And all always acknowledge him. And one of these new versions says he'll make your path straight. But that's not what your Bible says. It's not what the King James the King James Bible says. He'll direct thy path. I wish life was always a straight path, but rarely is it so. We're not promised a straight path, but we're promised His guiding hand. Sometimes you'll go through the valley of the shadow of death, but hey, He'll lead you in those times. His rod and His staff they'll comfort you during those times. And and and, and the psalmist he's not asking for God to take all of his problems away. He's just asking God to help him to stand in the midst of. Talks about a land of uprightness. He's seeking a place of, of flatness. But then I would say this. Why is he asking for that? Well, very simply, he wants to be able to stand. Right? He wants to be able to stand without toppling over. Why does he want that? Well, because he wants to keep on serving the Lord. Let me say it this way. He's seeking a place of faithfulness. He's saying, Lord, I need to be able to stand with my feet underneath me so that I can be able to be a present witness for you. I don't want to fail. I don't want to fall. I don't want to give up. I don't want to quit. I mean, a man that's seeking a flat place to stand is a man that's not ready to lay down and give up. It's a man that's wanting to be able to go forward and go on and continue for the Lord. And I would say in our life, you say, Preacher, I'm going through a hard time. How do I need to pray? You ought to pray that God helps you to be faithful in the midst of that hard time. Say, well, Preacher, that's not my priority. My priority is relief. Well, the greatest relief you'll experience is the presence of the Lord and his faithfulness being lived out in your life. I'll tell you this, he could take all them problems away, but if he don't do something in your heart and soul, you'll be just as empty inside as you were to begin with. Uh, what you need is is not all your problems removed. And uh, you say, preacher, how do you know that's not what I need? Because that's not what the Lord gives anyone, not till he takes them home to heaven. We all in this life are going to face problems. You think what you need is all your problems to go away. But that's not really what you need. What you really need is the confidence that you're in the will of God, the presence of God, communion with him, the ability to look at your problems straight in the teeth and say, I may not be able to make you go away, but I know God's with me in the midst of this. And I have confidence that I'm right where he wants me to be. Preacher, what do I need during these hard times? You need to know you're in the will of God. You need to know what the will of God is for your life and be able to stand in confidence in it. Let's bow together tonight as a musician comes to play. The altar is open. There could be some small matter that you need the mind of God about. There could be some monumental matter that you need the mind of God about. Uh, But whatever you need God's will and God's mind on, won't you come find a place at this altar? Just open your heart to him and say, now, Lord, and by that, what I mean is talk to him. Bear your heart. Pour your heart out to him. Lord, I need to know your will about this matter. I need to know what you expect out of me. Lord, show me in your word. Show me through your spirit, endorsing your word and certifying it through it. God, direct me in your will. Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in his name.